is. In this Lord's Day, we confess that God is triune, three persons in one God. This confession comes right after Lord's Day 7, where it was asked what a Christian must believe. The answer to this question is that we must believe everything that is promised us in the gospel, which are taught in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. This basic summary of the Christian faith we find in the Apostles' Creed, which we often confess in the afternoon worship services. That basic creed now forms the basis for the first question of Lord's Day 8, how are the articles of the Apostles' Creed divided? These articles are organized according to the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The identity of the triune God not only forms the core of our faith, but also forms the organizing principle of the basic summary of the Christian faith. Earlier in this service, we confessed our faith using the Athanasian Creed. This creed stresses the importance of believing the Trinity. Without believing the Trinity, it is impossible to be saved. It is an essential part of the Christian faith because it concerns who God is. The Athanasian Creed summarizes the Catholic universal Christian faith, which includes the confession of the Trinity and the identity of Jesus Christ as true God and true man. It is the person of God and the person and the work of Christ which together form the core of the Christian faith. Let us this afternoon consider the Trinity from the perspective of the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ while he was on earth. I proclaim to you God's word under the following theme, the triune God reveals himself at the baptism of Jesus. At this event, we see first the work of the Father, second the work of the Son, and third the work of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Lord Jesus by preaching the need for repentance because the kingdom of God is now at hand. He was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. People from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan came out to hear him and to confess their sins. When the people acknowledged their guilt, then they would be baptized by John in the Jordan River. The baptism symbolized the forgiveness of their sins now that they had confessed their sins to God. When God sees a broken and contrite heart, then there is forgiveness with Him. John the Baptist now proclaims it urgently because the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. There is urgency in his message because now God will be taking a decisive step forward in the history of redemption. He will now make known who the Messiah is, the one who will provide the actual payment for sin. Now the moment of truth has come. Now the Messiah is about to be revealed. 
Now every tree must bear good fruit or it will be cut down and destroyed. John the Baptist proclaims words of judgment against the Israelites and warns that God can turn stones into children of Abraham. The privileged position of the Israelites will soon come to an end. The axe is laid at the root of the trees in the forest of Israel. Now is the time to repent and turn to God. For now is still the time of God's special favor to his people in sending the Messiah who was promised long ago from ancient times. John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Savior to come so that he may be revealed to the people of Israel. John says that there is someone coming after him who is more powerful and greater than him. While John baptizes with water, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is the one who will later come in judgment and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, but gather in the wheat, the faithful ones, into his barn. Who is the one who is coming? Jesus Christ from Nazareth. He came from Galilee to John in the desert of Judea to be baptized by him. He did that so that he might fulfill all righteousness. He did it under the approval of God the Father in heaven. After Jesus came up out of the water, we read in verse 17 that a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This voice from heaven is the voice of God the Father. He is declaring before everyone that this Jesus from Galilee is his eternal and natural Son. Such a public declaration was needed at this time of the beginning of the public ministry of our Savior. Everyone must know and understand that Jesus was sent by God himself to do his work in this world. This Son of God must be listened to and esteemed for what he is doing because God himself loves him and is well pleased with him. God the Father takes the unusual step here of speaking directly to the people of Israel as they are gathered around John the Baptist and receiving the baptism of repentance. God's very own Son, whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased, has come among them. Jesus has been sent by God himself to further God's program of salvation. God the Father wants to ensure that it is clear to everyone that Jesus of Nazareth is special, his eternal and natural son, whom he offered up for the benefit of mankind. The love of God the Father for his son comes out very clearly here. This love of God the Father for his son is very deep, pure, and holy. It is a love which is eternal and forever. 
It is a love based upon an eternity of fellowship and communion between God the Father and God the Son. We cannot imagine what this communion is. It is something far deeper and more perfect than anything that we can experience in our human lives, even in the closest of our relationships. As two holy and perfect, divine and eternal beings, they have fellowship with each other forever and in a complete and total way. They had no need for anyone else, but were sufficient with each other and with the Spirit. And yet, although God the Father and God the Son, together with God the Holy Spirit, had this very close eternal bond and enjoyed fellowship and communion in all perfection for all eternity, yet God the Father was willing to sacrifice His one and only Son for us because of our sins. He gave up this beloved Son in order that we might be saved. See the love of God the Father and love Him in return. We can read about this love in so many places in the Bible. The most well-known is in John 3 where the Apostle John writes, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This love of God extends to the world he created, the world which had rejected him and become lost in sin. God wanted to save the world from destruction and his wrath because he loved it. He loved it so much that he even gave his only son and put him on this earth and appointed him for service in this plan and made this known to everyone at the baptism of Jesus. This love of the holy God for sinners is a miracle of God's grace and compassion. The sin of the world did not prevent the love of God, but served instead to show its greatness and power. The Apostle Paul also speaks of this love of God in Romans 5, where he writes, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. How great is the love of God for this sinful world. God's love is so great and incredible because it is even able to prevail over his holy hatred and abhorrence of sin. This is love, that the holy God could love a sinful world and want to save it. The greatness of God's love in even sending his very own son to die for this sinful world is utterly amazing and astounding. We are unable to express properly the greatness of God's love. We will never be able to understand it. We can only marvel at how deeply God loved this world and worship Him. 
He sent His Son to endure unspeakable torment and anguish, even His dreadful wrath, in order that this sinful, perverse, and hateful world, which is completely undeserving, might be saved from certain destruction. At the very beginning of Christ's ministry, God the Father expressed His love for His Son, even while He was in the act of sending Him off on His actual mission to suffer and die for sinners. Although it is certainly true that Jesus suffered during the whole time that He was on earth, also during the years of his, before His public ministry, it is really during the last three years, and especially on the cross, that His suffering was at its most severe. It was then that He had to experience the full weight of God's wrath over Him because of our sins and because of God's love for you and for me. God loved us so much that He was willing to sacrifice what was most dear to Him, His very own Son. God the Father was well pleased with His Son because of the communion He had had with Him for eternity already. He knew that His Son would fulfill His plan of redeeming for Himself a new mankind. God the Son showed His willingness to follow the Father's plan by coming down to this earth and allowing Himself to be baptized in the Jordan by John. And so we come to the second point, the work of God the Son. Many people had come from all over Judea and beyond to be baptized by John. They knew their sin and repented from their sin and desired to be cleansed from their wickedness. Through this baptism, they were ceremonially washed from their sins. They could leave their sins behind in the Jordan River, as it were, and make a new start in their life with God. They had confessed their sins and were now committed to a new life of bearing fruit for the Lord and showing their love and dedication to Him. Yet as important as it was for the people to do these things, ultimately this would not actually free them from their guilt before God. For that to happen, God Himself would come to their help. He Himself would fulfill the requirements of the law which they were expected to do. God, in His mercy, knew that it had become impossible for man to do it on its own. And therefore, He sent His Son to do it for them and so deliver us from our sins. Jesus speaks of this when He asked John to baptize him in the Jordan. The people had come and been baptized by John for the forgiveness of sins so that their sins could be washed away. Now the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God-made man, comes and asks to be baptized by John. John was astonished at this request, for he knew him to be the Lamb of God, the one who has no stain or blemish, the one without sin. 
Why should he baptize the Holy One who did not need to be cleansed from sin? John recognizes his own inadequacy and realizes that he needs to be baptized and cleansed by Jesus Christ instead. But Jesus remains firm in his purpose and replies in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. One of the things that Jesus had to do in his redeeming work was receive the baptism of John the Baptist. The Lord understands John's objection. It is indeed unusual for John to baptize Jesus, the perfect and holy one. It is necessary, however, in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Throughout his life on earth, Jesus had to suffer and be humiliated. Part of this humiliation was his baptism by John. He was baptized for a different reason than all the others. He was baptized in order that he might take upon himself all the sins that the others had, so to speak, left behind in the Jordan River. Through his baptism, Jesus also showed that he was equal to his brothers in every respect. He was baptized so that it might be clear to everyone that he was going down the whole road of humiliation in every detail. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to do God's will in all things. He came to fulfill all righteousness, to keep every law in God's Word for us. We were unable to do that, but He did it for us so that He might render His obedience to God on our behalf and satisfy God's perfect justice for us. Christ came and eagerly did God's will for us. We sang about that as well from Psalm 440, which prophesies of the coming Messiah who finds his delight in the law of God and keeps it completely. The Christ has now come and perfectly fulfilled God's will. In the Athanasian Creed, we confess the truth of the Trinity and the incarnation of the Son of God in the man Jesus Christ. Both the reality of the triune God and the incarnation of Christ are core beliefs of the Christian faith. They come together in the second person of the Trinity. Anyone who wishes to be saved must believe these doctrines because there is no other way to salvation other than through the only Savior, Jesus Christ. The description of these doctrines defies our finite human minds. We cannot grasp them or understand them. We will never be able to understand how there can be one God and yet three persons in that one God. Likewise, we will never be able to understand how Christ can be both true God and true man at the very same time. The two are mutually exclusive by their very nature. And yet in Christ, we find them both in their totality, for he is true God and true man. 
He needed to retain both properties in order that we might be saved. We saw that the Catechism explained this clearly in Lord's Day 6. He needs to be true God to bear God's wrath and true man to accomplish for us in our place what we should have done to fulfill all righteousness and pay the debts that we had piled up before God. God the Son was not left on his own when he was baptized and received the words of encouragement from his Father in heaven. But he also received the help of God the Holy Spirit. And so we come to the third point. At the moment that Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. God the Holy Spirit came down to encourage and equip Jesus of Nazareth for his task of doing God's will and accomplishing God's plan for salvation. The coming of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus reminds us of the prophecies of Isaiah. In Isaiah 11 we read, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God says through his prophet, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And finally, also in Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The Holy Spirit was given to Jesus to equip him in his task as a man. As a man, he needs the Lord's help. Even though he is perfect and holy, he is still a man and weak in himself. He is a real man and therefore subject to weakness and frailty. He had to learn obedience and needed to be prepared and equipped by the Spirit of God. The Spirit anoints Christ for his work of service and officially designates him to be the Messiah, the anointed and chosen one. The Spirit comes upon Jesus Christ like a dove. The Spirit does not depend upon, descend upon Christ in the form of a bird of prey, but as a humble and lowly bird, a bird of peace and gentleness. For Christ is the Prince of Peace, the one who would reconcile God and man. The Son of God was equipped by the Spirit in order that his task of bringing peace to men might be accomplished and actually carried out. In the events of the baptism of Jesus Christ, we see all three persons of the Trinity busy on our behalf. How amazing and wonderful this is, brothers and sisters. See your God in action for you.
Worship Him and praise Him with everything you have. God the Father expresses His love for His Son publicly at His baptism and at the same time shows His love for us. For even though He loved His Son so much, He was willing to give Him up and cause Him to suffer His eternal wrath in order that sinners like you and me might be saved. Such love is incomprehensible to us finite human beings. We will never grasp it, but we can only worship and adore such a wonderful and incredible God. God the Son was willing to give himself up for us and leave behind the glory that he had with God the Father and God the Spirit and instead become a man to suffer and die in our place. He did what we could no longer do. We had robbed ourselves of the ability to do that, but Christ did it for us. God the Son accomplished His redeeming work perfectly, and therefore we may be sure of our salvation. Never doubt the work of Jesus Christ, but believe it always and find your rest and peace in Him. God the Holy Spirit is the one who equipped Christ for His task and enabled Him to do it. Each person of the Trinity was busy in ensuring that our redemption and salvation would be possible. The Father in loving and sending His Son, the Son in accomplishing the task in His human nature, and the Spirit in equipping and enabling the Son for His task. Beloved in the Lord, let us in each day of our lives respond to this great God for everything that He has done for us. And let us seek to imitate Him and follow Him in all that we do. Let us strive to love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves even as they are our enemies, just as God also did this for us. May we follow Christ and share in His suffering and death by putting sin to death in our lives and also share in His resurrection and ascension so that we might live a new life for the Lord and seek the things that are above. May we constantly seek also the help of the Spirit of God Acknowledging that we need His help and direction every day. Let us strive to show the fruit of the Spirit in our lives in even greater depth and clarity so that God alone may be praised and adored by us always. Amen. Let us sing Psalm 40, stanza 4 and 7.